Good morning again. This morning we're going to be looking at Romans eight eighteen through twenty five. Anytime preacher or anyone else would open Romans eight, an understandable response would be, "Are you sure you want to do that? Because it's massive. There's so much here." Of course, the answer is yes. We want to do that. We understand that even in this small piece from Romans 8, the mysteries, the profundities, and the truths, they never end. And so it is a good time to open Romans 8 this morning and read verses 18 through 25. You read with me. And there the Apostle Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. But the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the, chain, in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. And I hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, We wait for it with patience. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would give us the gift of faith to grab hold of Jesus this morning, to behold him, our hope, and that you would, by your spirit, make us people of hope to cling not to this world, not to our gifts, and not given to despair, but that seek him, look for him, wait for him, groan for him, because you are our hope. and You are the one who has loved us. And we ask that your word would sink into our hearts now and transform us. We ask this in your name. Amen. There's a passage in the book Cat's Cradle by Kurt Vonnegut where the, the author, the narrator, is reflecting on this book of religious scripture that he has been researching, and it's called the book of Bokanon. And he says at this one point in the book that he had read the 14th book of Bokanon. And he says, I had read it in its entirety the night before. It's entitled, What Can a Thoughtful Man Hope? For mankind on earth, given the experience of the past million years, it doesn't take long to read the 14th book. It consists of one word and a period. This is it. Nothing. What can a thoughtful man hope for given the experience of a million years? Nothing. There's another story of a composer named Giazzotto. After World War II, he claimed to have discovered a new piece of music by the famous composer Tommaso Abenauni, I believe it's pronounced. And he believed, or he claimed, that he had discovered a new piece of music from this famous composer that's entitled Adagio, which you've probably heard. It's very famous. 
And what's very interesting about this story is that it is there's no evidence at all that Giazzotto had discovered an original piece by Albanoni. It's actually just as likely that Giazzotto wrote the piece of music himself and then made up the story. Whether or not that's true, this is a, an image of someone trying to capture something beautiful. This piece of music is, is incredibly, immensely beautiful and rescuing it from rubble, rescuing it out of dust, bringing hope where there was no hope. I think these two stories, the, the passage from Vonnegut's book and the story of the composer potentially rescuing hope out of rubble, give us a sense of basically where we are at as a culture and our relationship with hope. Because on the one hand, our culture is mired in despair, a lack of hope, a sense that things are hopeless. We get this sense in, in the air that we breathe, in the, the anger and the, in the sense of cynicism that pervades Twitter and Facebook and so much of our discourse. We also see it in the increase in and spike in what we call deaths of despair. Our world is sunk into a bog of despair, a lack of hope. And at the same time, we cannot help, as a culture, seek to grab some kind of hope out of the rubble. To say that even if it, even if it isn't real, even if it doesn't in some absolute way mean anything, we want to rescue out some sense that there is hope, that we're moving toward something meaningful, that something that's better, something that's healing, that transcends all of the awfulness. And this, this rescuing of hope out of the rubble can look like the pursuit of self-discovery, a new self-identity. And see it in, in seeking to stand tall in some political crisis. We even see it more and more now as we move toward a metaverse, a different reality outside of the physical reality where people can have a new digital self. These things we know are empty. They're false. All of these things are like seeking to build a statue out of dust. So where are we at? The Bible is not despairing. Not at all. It is not cynical. Not one ounce. Yet the Bible tells us that there is nothing in this world, nothing in the rubble from which we can construct a hope. So where is our hope? In Romans 8, Paul is inviting us to see our hope in heaven unseen. To see that our hope is actual and concrete and weightier even, even than the things that we see around us. And yet, we have to wait for it. We must groan for it because it's in heaven. And so what does it mean to, to see or behold hope that is unseen in heaven? How can you see hope if you can't see it? And that's the question I want to address this morning to remind us from Romans 8 what's true. How do we see our unseen hope? And we're going to understand this and explore this by looking at three aspects of our hope the timing of hope, the groaning of hope, and the waiting of hope. The timing, the groaning, and the waiting. So first we'll see the timing of hope. The assumption here in Romans 8 is that we are living between two ages. The present age and the age to come. 
And we are in the in between these ages because Jesus Christ came, lived and died and rose again, inaugurating new creation life, resurrection life. And he himself straddles these two ages. What are they? The present age is an age characterized by suffering. And Paul says in verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This present age is characterized by an ordinariness of frustration, of suffering, of death. The age to come is characterized by the glory that is to be revealed to us when this new creation life comes to full actual realization. But what is the the pattern? What is the trajectory here that Paul is getting at? We can go to verse 19. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Of God. This present age is characterized by futility because God, as a just judge, subjected it to futility as a perfect judgment upon sin. But this was not done in despair, but in hope, knowing that in God's providence, He would bring about liberation from this bondage through the judgment of the Son, the death of Christ upon the cross. And so, These two ages stand alongside one another, the age of suffering and the age of glory to come. Jesus himself straddles these ages because he, in the present, in this age of suffering, he died and was glorified in this age. Yet for us, we must wait. So, and the one, on the one hand, we do not place our hope in this age because it's characterized by suffering, and yet we have hope. Do not place your hope in this age, but we have hope because Jesus himself died and was glorified in this age and because he has given us the first fruits of the Spirit, Paul says in verse 23, is a down payment of new creation life. And he's coming back for us. See, Jesus defines the timing of our hope. Our, the, our sense of, of timing of where our hope is and when it is is entirely located in Jesus because it's already and not yet. Already it has been inaugurated and not yet has it been fully realized. I was watching the first round of the college football playoffs about a month ago where Georgia beat Michigan. And after the game, Georgia had won the game, and the players were celebrating. They brought this huge, you know, container of Gatorade, the cooler of Gatorade, over to the coach, Kirby Smart, and they were going to dump it on him. And he refused. He wouldn't let them dump the Gatorade on him. And it was really interesting. It was actually a great coach move. Because what he was doing in that moment is he was celebrating with them, but he was acknowledging the final enemy, Alabama, has not yet been defeated. And so he wouldn't let them celebrate because it wasn't time yet for the Gatorade bath. This, this gives us a sense of the kind of timing of our hope that we experience, that we, that we have right now. On the one hand, we have the victory of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, the inauguration of new kingdom life. And yet it's not time for the Gatorade bath yet. You've got to know the timing. The gospel calls us to refuse to place our hope in this age. 
Because we're not living in the age of glory to come. We are in the age of suffering. Do not place your hope in the things of this age. Do not place it in any created gift that is given to you. Receive it with gratitude, but do not receive it and think that this is going to, this, this money, this comfort, this power, this influence is going to help me to transcend. It's going to bring healing. It's going to bring the hope that I long for. And at the same time, the gospel calls us to refuse despair. To not look at suffering and frustration and futility as though something strange were happening. But instead, in dependence upon Christ, to see all of our frustrations, all the futility, all of our suffering transfused with the hope of resurrection. The gospel reshapes our sense of timing and grounds our hope in heaven, where it is already and not yet ours. The gospel tells us you have the victory, but it's not yet time for the Gatorade bath. This is the timing of our hope already and not yet. So in light of that, what should our response be? What does it mean to behold our hope? This leads us to the second thing, the groaning of hope. The groaning of hope. Paul says in verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Groaning, this is sighing, longing, crying out. And Paul says the entire creation is crying out like a woman in childbirth, longing, lamenting, and hoping for what will be realized, what is to come, the arrival of the child that she longs for. And Paul says, in the same way, we groan, we sigh, we long, we cry out for what is to come. He says in verse 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. This is a quote from the author and theologian John Stott. He says, the very presence of the Spirit is a constant reminder of the incompleteness of our salvation. Not incomplete in the sense of accomplishment, but incomplete in the sense of experiential realization. Because we have the Holy Spirit, we groan all the more, longing for what is to come. Longing to be filled with the Spirit and to see God face to face through the Son by the Spirit. We groan like the creation for the liberation from bondage. As the creation longs for liberation from things being futile and breaking apart, we long both for the freedom of the redemption of our bodies, for the glorified state, but also we long for a sinless communion with God himself. And so we groan, so we long, because we've had a foretaste of what's to come. I'm smart enough not to downplay the pain of childbirth in 2022, my wife has had two children. You know, Paul wrote this at a time when the, the, the birth, we might say, of medicine and anesthesia and ways of dulling some of the pain of childbirth had not been created. Pain was, maybe we can say, even more particularly known and experienced as perhaps the greatest pain a, a mere human could endure. And Paul intentionally gives us this picture for what it means to groan with hope. 
This is a glorious groan of the gospel. Groaning is a posture of deep and continual lament. As a, as a woman in childbirth groans and laments because of the deep pain and anguish and the longing for what is to come, the arrival of the child and the end of her pain, which of course we know is not the end of her pain. It's a deep and continual lament. It's a continual lament for the fate of the lost. It's a deep and continual lament because of the plight of the poor and the pain of our neighbors. It's a deep and continual lament because we see the sin that continues to reside in us and we groan longing for full maturity. We groan and we long for what's to come. But groaning is also a posture of steady rejoicing, not despair. As the woman groans and cries out in childbirth, she is grasping at hope. She is grasping at what she longs for and knows is coming. Groaning is a posture of rejoicing as we grab hold of Jesus Christ by faith and cry out, Lord Jesus, come. Lord Jesus, come. The gospel invites us to groan with the hope of heaven. To groan both lamenting that our hope of heaven has not yet returned, Lord Jesus come, but also to, to groan grasping at hope and crying out because we know that he is ours and we know that he is coming. And so the question for us this morning is, are you groaning with hope of heaven? Are you groaning or have you become complacent to the pain of your neighbors? Are you groaning or have you become content with yourself, rather than responding to grace, pursuing holiness and maturity in Christ? Or are we groaning for all the wrong things? Are we groaning with hope for more security and more comfort and more of these things that we think that we can rescue from the rubble and build up and they're going to be healing? And yet they are nothing. Paul invites us, groan, because then when you groan, You behold him. You behold your faith. It's in the groaning that you see by faith. In some ways, Paul is calling us to a godly discontent. And at the same time, he's calling us to a godly contentment because of our hope, which leads us to the third thing, the waiting of hope. We've seen the timing, the groaning, and third, the waiting of hope. First, we wait eagerly. He says there in verse 23, we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We groan eagerly because we have been adopted. And yet we have not fully seen God face to face through the son by the spirit. And so we wait eagerly. It's like I picture a child who gets her first taste of ice cream. If you've ever seen this kind of thing, a child gets, has never tasted anything like this, anything like that the first burst of sugar. And it's like their entire body comes alive in a new way. And they're just reaching for the spoon. They're reaching for the pint. They want more of it. We wait eagerly because we have this down payment. We wait eagerly for the redemption of our body because we have been redeemed, yet we we long for rescue from the futility of our bodies. We long for the glorified state. We long for sinless communion with God himself. We wait eagerly. We also wait 
with patience. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We wait with patience because we do not yet see our hope. We don't get to peer into God's eternal counsel. We do not know the when. We only know the guarantee of Jesus. And this is a real tension that we live in. John Stott again says, We are to wait neither so eagerly that we lose our patience, nor so patiently that we lose our expectation. We're both to wait eagerly, and yet to wait with a godly contentment and patience. This is the hardest part, as Tom Petty sang. Um, I'm reminded of the opening words from the novel Wings of the Dove by Henry James, and he's describing a woman who is waiting on her father to arrive, and she is pacing this room and filled with this intense longing for him to arrive, and she walks over to a sofa, and then she walks over to curtains, then she walks to the balcony, and the way it's described is as if everywhere she goes, everything she touches, everything she looks at in the room only intensifies the sense that she's waiting. This is the way it is for us. Everything in creation, everything in our lives, it intensifies this sense that we are waiting, longing, but waiting. And what's so difficult about waiting? But waiting, on the one hand, it makes us vulnerable. It makes us vulnerable to the specter of despair. Because as Christians, what if he doesn't come back? What if he doesn't arrive? Waiting makes us vulnerable knowing that we are waiting on the one who we cannot control, we cannot manipulate. We're waiting on him and trusting him. Waiting is so difficult also, simply because we are impatient. We want hope now. We want it realized now. And everything in the world is selling you now. Quick hope. You don't have to wait. You can have your best life now. Whether it's through a new, a new identity, a self-actualization program, whether it's through, again, some future digital escape from reality, or whether it's in the political realm of realizing the kingdom both here and now. Everything is promising us, you don't have to wait, you can have it right now. Yet the gospel calls us to wait. To wait eagerly and to wait with patience. Why would God ask us to do this? I believe it's very clear that God has called us to patience, called us to wait eagerly to conform us to Jesus, who himself waited for the Father to vindicate him. God wants to conform us to Jesus, once so that we would be of earthly good. And this, this pushes against any lie that to focus on the hope of heaven means that we are of less earthly good. No, the more that we think that we can build hope out of the rubble, the more we just pump false hope into the system. But it's when we wait on God's word to instruct us, when we wait on God's spirit to work through us, that we become of earthly good. God wants to conform us to Jesus so that we could be instruments of his mercy and of his kingdom, of his holiness. He wants to conform us to Jesus also so that we might enjoy him so we might 
know his hope more here in the present. As we wait, he matures us into the likeness of Christ, filling us with the Spirit so that we would all the more behold our hope concretely, experientially. And this comes through waiting. The gospel invites us to wait for the unveiling of our hope because in the waiting you see. In the waiting you behold. But how can we trust? How can we trust that the groaning and the waiting is worth it? When the weather is nice, I, I go pick up my son from, from daycare. He'll be out on the playground where he goes to daycare. And when I turn the corner so that I see the playground where, he's, where he is there playing, supposed to be playing, he is always there at 11.55 doing the same thing. And he is reaching his hands through the bars of the playground, of the gate, and he is waiting for me because he is smart or he, he knows the timing better than, than I know it. And he's reaching for me and just looking for me in that moment. And I see this face that looks like mine when he sees my smiling face. We do not yet see Jesus, but when we grasp after him in groaning and in waiting, we behold him by faith and we behold him in love because the one who is our hope has loved us. He has given himself for us. Dying a, a death that by any metric would be conceived of as the, the, a death of utter, ultimate despair. And yet in that death, we have our hope. He has given himself to us to be raised from the dead so that we would share in him as our hope, as a free gift. Because he loves us. And so what is he calling us to this morning? Just to, to reach through the bars of despair, through the, and past false hope, to, to long for him to say, come, Lord Jesus, and to know our hope is coming. Let me pray. Father, thank you that our hope is steady. Our hope is concrete. And yet, Lord, we must groan and we must wait for the full realization of our hope. So I pray that you would give us faith, you would strengthen our faith, that by your spirit we would behold our hope in love. We ask this in your name. Amen.